Hello, and welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We're here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and he is one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. In this episode, we explore new and interesting questions about smell, taste, and consciousness with our special guest, Dr. Stuart Firestein, an esteemed neuroscientist who specializes in the olfactory system. Why and how our brains and noses sense smell. Stuart Firestein is the former chair of Columbia University's Department of Biological Sciences and neuroscience professor there, where his laboratory studies the vertebrate olfactory system, possibly the best chemical detector on the face of the planet. Aside from its molecular detection capabilities, the olfactory system serves as a model for investigating general principles and mechanisms of signaling and perception in the brain, the ways in which chemicals such as neurotransmitters, hormones, and peptides with membrane receptors exert their influence in the brain and nervous system. Stewart hypothesizes that the olfactory neuron is uniquely suited for these studies since it is designed specifically for the detection and discrimination of a wide variety of small organic molecules, such as odors. Stewart has an obsession with the history, evolution, and future of science, and has authored two popular and fascinating books that have been translated into 12 languages, Ignorance, How It Drives Science, and Failure, Why Science is So Successful, both published by Oxford University Press. His books cast science as an unending quest to illuminate ignorance and failure as an essential component in that process. Also joining us is our resident student interviewer, Ilian Daskalov. Ilian just received his degree in cognitive neuroscience at UC Irvine, holds a BA in business management, and is currently immersed in data science studies. Hello, Stuart. Welcome. Hello, Nat. How nice to see you. How nice to be here. This is a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. We are all looking forward to this. Thank you so much for being here with us. Hello, Ilian. Good morning. Good morning, Natalie. Pleasure to be here. We are happy to have you back. Thank you. Hey, Bernie, how are you this morning? I'm fine this morning, and I'm trying to uh, get my voice to sound a little bit better than this, but uh, it'll warm up. <laughs> well, it's a good whiskey voice. We like it. Whiskey voice? <laughs> yeah. Where's my whiskey? <laughs> Stuart? <laughs> Oh, is that the bottle you were talking about, Stuart? That's the bottle. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're on Zoom, and there's no channel on Zoom for uh, transferring liquids or scents, for that matter. Well, we'll just get psychologically, you know, smashed. So, anyway, <laughs> it's... <laughs> well, Bernie, I know you have so many fascinating questions and topics to discuss today with Stuart. Shall we begin? Uh, yes, please. Stu, it's wonderful to see you again, and I've had the opportunity now to read some of your recent papers, 
which are fascinating. And of course, I love the idea of ignorance and failure because those are my, my uh, guidelines in my own life when it comes to science. Walking into a lab and being wrong is sort of the great humiliating but educational experience, at least for me. So I like that approach very, very much. Well, thanks so much, Bernie. It's really a pleasure to be here with you like this. I mean, I respect your work so deeply, and it's been so important and seminal in so many ways. So I'm really looking forward to engaging with you here today. And thank you for the compliments on the books. It's interesting when you have a a sort of a niche market like ignorance and failure cornered like that, you know. But we all know as scientists that this is what we really do. We, We deal every day in ignorance, and we fail most of the time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The repeated humiliation of especially experimental science is such a life lesson. It's hard to explain it, right? Because people think it's terrible, and it is terrible, but then you grow out of it, and that's the good part. Yes, I think scientists are the most optimistic people in the world, you know. Your papers get rejected, grants aren't funded, whatever it might be. Experiments fail regularly. All you think about is what you don't know, and yet you come in every morning ready to ask another question. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the questions keep on getting better, or at least that's my personal delusion that keeps me fairly happy in, in, in science. Not a delusion at all. I think the whole purpose of science is to get better questions. I mean, I know a lot of people think it's facts, but once you get the facts, you put them in a textbook and you forget them. What we really are after are better, more sophisticated, more interesting, deeper questions. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And that's also why Natalie and I decided on this short title of Smell, Taste, and Consciousness. The reason is actually that I'm sort of a crusader when it comes to consciousness, and the reason for that is that I came to some degree of maturity in psychology at a time when behaviorism was still extremely powerful. So if you wanted your career to fail, you would definitely be interested in consciousness and actually tell people about that, Uh, and then you would crash and burn and, and... pick yourself up and crash and burn again, and and so on. But eventually, what I think happened that's relevant to us here today is that um, around 1970, Irving Rock and some other vision scientists uh, finally got over what is called the Helmholtz problem in perception science, which is the fact that Helmholtz, who was utterly brilliant, realized very early on, around 1840, mm-hmm. about the middle of the, of the 19th century, he realized that there was a lot of stuff going on that was unconscious but clearly intelligent in the sense of being biologically functional and, and also psychologically functional. That made no sense to people. And when uh, Helmholtz uh, made a public statement about his belief on that, he basically got beaten up and, and canceled. Uh, except nobody could cancel Helmholtz, of course. He had too much great stuff already at that time. But I think it certainly hurt his emotions and the way he perceived his own reputation. It's a long story, but basically what this has to do is, is that the major topic of human psychology in the 19th century, which was consciousness, 
as William James wrote in 1890, in perhaps the greatest uh, textbook in English of uh, psychology of that era, which is enormously important era, very, very respectable. It's not the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages came afterwards. <laughs> and then, of course, John Watson, two years after James's death, John Watson came along and started with the phrase in his Behavioristic Manifesto, started with the phrase that consciousness is nothing but the soul of religion. And since everybody in the progressive era thought that religion was a bad thing, necessarily consciousness was a bad thing. None of this makes sense in, in, a, in a rational universe, but we don't live in a rational universe as we know, and science tries to be rational. And very gradually, of course, we do manage to climb up the mountain slowly and fall down every now and then and climb up the mountain again. But still, in the 20th century, uh, the first, certainly the first half of the 20th century, John Watson and B.F. Skinner were the great uh, behaviorists uh, in the public eye. And, and they were both talented in different ways. P.F. Skinner is particularly well-respected, but behaviorism, I think, and here I want your input if you would like to tell me, I think that behaviorism has retreated somewhat from the height of its power. Behaviorism being a purely physicalistic way of thinking about what I would like to call the mind, which is also the brain. I think this is really a very nice laying out of the history of all this things, historical perspective. And I mean, behaviorism, I think, was also a very specifically American kind of thing. In Europe, yes. ethology still holds sway, held sway during much of that period. Yes. But, you know, the power of Harvard University and places like that where Skinner was just dominated right. the American psychological scene. I, I've always felt it's very unfortunate that there is this split that way between behaviorism and ethology or consciousness studies. I mean, my feeling is the brain deserves a very pluralistic approach to things. Yep. And, and you can get it at many, many different ways, even if they seem incommensurable in some way. So there was a lot that behaviorism had to offer. It's just that it didn't need to dominate psychology in order to be valuable, which was the, the terrible mistake. You know, it's like having one, only one operating system for computers. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, so, uh, multiple approaches. And I believe, actually, empirically, that multiple approaches very often converge uh, with each other so that you don't get some kind of radical gap between the subjective aspects of perception and the so-called objective aspects of perception. It's just perception, and yep. there are different ways of approaching it. But, you know, even, even if you get some sort of a, a disconnect, I, I think that's okay. I mean, they can be, as uh, Isaiah Berlin used to say, incommensurable ideas that you can't, there's a wonderful quote I love to use by Niels Bohr, who once said, the opposite of a falsehood is a truth, but the opposite of a profound truth is often another profound truth. Yeah, that's, that's, that is wonderful, yes. But the important part of it is the second line, that you can have two profound truths that can be in opposition to each other. Yes, indeed. And I think in the history of science, uh, that discovery has been made uh, over and over again. Newton... Um, and people who opposed him on the gravity question 
you know, they were incommensurable, but they were both right. So uh, there's so much to be said for that. Anyway, I would like to ask you two things, actually. First, can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey from being a director? Was it a film director or a theater director or both? Uh, I don't know where you get this information from. This web is just really, nothing is hidden anymore. I was, oh. a, I, I worked in the theater, a theater, I was a theater director. I never really did any work in film or TV, a little bit here and there, but I was uh, devoted to the theater for many years. I guess I spent about 15 years in the professional theater. I mean, I eventually considered myself a director. That's what I wanted to do. But in those days in the theater, you kind of, uh, in those days, I'm afraid this was back in the 19. 19- 70s, late 60s, 1970s, and 80s. And in, and in those days, there were no, you didn't go to college for this. There were no professional schools for training you in the theater. You went and apprenticed yourself to people. You schlepped scenery, you went out and got props, you brought coffee, et cetera, et cetera. And you worked with people who you thought were good and you tried to learn from them, which I still think is maybe one of the best ways to learn a field. I, I think graduate school yep. in the sciences is essentially an apprenticeship or should be looked at it as such, not as a school, but really as an apprenticeship. So I, I think it's one of the things I learned working in the theater was the way you learn is, is by being a, an apprentice. You're, you're involved, but you're not responsible. So you can learn, you can watch, you can take what's good and see what's bad and all of those sorts of things. So it was a very right. valuable time. Yeah, uh, I have the same uh, experience, actually. I've been immensely lucky with my mentors for a long period of time for no particularly good reason, but it just happened. Uh, so Stu, uh, similar to you, my background is quite diverse. I was in business, I was in finance, psychology, neuroscience, currently dabbling into computers. Can you tell me how your journey took you from being a director to being a neuroscientist, a biologist, an author? Well, I, maybe I could tell you, I'm not really sure. Um... <laughs> You know, these things in retrospect, you, you make up these narratives in retrospect. But but if, to be honest about it, it was really a kind of a series of small steps, no one of which seemed like it was a very big decision at the time. And then suddenly I wound up, I only made one big decision, which was when I decided to try graduate school. So I had not been to college. As I said, I was worked as an apprentice in the theater, but I'd always had this abiding interest in animals and animal behavior. And so I would read widely on animal behavior, not professionally, but I'd read a lot about it, Conrad Lorenz and people like that, you know. At some point, I was involved in a show that I did the lighting for, and I was also stage managing it, and I had a lot of time over. It was a very successful show. This was in San Francisco, in fact, on the West Coast. And I decided to go take a class at the local state university in animal behavior. It was taught by a fellow named Hal Markowitz. One of these people has been a great mentor for me. You mentioned this, Bernie, how important mentorship is. And I've been very fortunate to have had three really remarkable people act as mentors for me in science. The first of which was this fellow, Hal Markowitz, who I took this class from. And it was just a brilliant class. And uh, I got to know him. We weren't that, I was 30 years old at the time. I'd never been to college, as I said. And so we got to be kind of friends. He was only maybe 40 or 42, I guess. I helped him out with some research he was doing, some very interesting research we could talk about later. It has nothing to do with smell or taste. And then he convinced me to try and get a degree in biology, actually. I had never thought of it, but I thought, okay, I'll try it. Here's the only interesting part of the story, Ilya, for what I think we're talking about today, which is that I thought, okay, well, I'll look into this, you know. And then I realized that the only way 
way to get a degree in biology was to pass this course on organic chemistry, which was kind of the weed out course, right? Orgo, they called it. So that's how they got rid of all the riffraff, as it were, <laughs> the people who couldn't climb the mountain. So I thought, well, organic chemistry, I, this is impossible, but I'll, you know, I better take it as soon as I can, because if I can't pass organic chemistry, there's no sense doing this. So I took a semester of general chemistry just to brush up, because I hadn't been to school in a while, and then I took organic chemistry. Now, the thing about organic chemistry that makes it so difficult for people is that it's almost entirely strict memorization, a vast amount of memorization. You have to memorize one reaction scheme after another. I mean, there are a few fundamental principles, but it, you can't work your way through those to get to an answer. So you memorize a vast number of reaction schemes. And that trips a lot of people up. But of course, I had spent the last 15 years in the theater doing nothing but memorizing scripts. So for me, it was trivial. People put something in front of me and say, memorize it. I go, sure, why not? I can do it, you know, very quickly. And so this memorization skill that I had developed by 15 years of work in the theater turned out to what gave me an A in organic chemistry and put me on the road to a career in science. Really? And so that was in many ways the turning point. Interesting. Curiously. Interesting. You pick up skills places that you never know. And this is one of these ideas of pluralism, I think. You can never be too sure where a skill will be valuable to you. Right, right. There's all these weird people in the history of science who, you know, come out of left field uh, and somehow they've learned something. Isaac Newton is a good example. Sigmund mm. Freud is a great example. There's all uh, examples all over the place because um, it seems to be very helpful for creative people to have multiple incompatible backgrounds, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, Newton is famous for actually having written more on alchemy than he wrote on physics. Uh -huh. I mean, by a significant amount. And so, you know, he was very deeply involved in alchemy and all the things that go along with that, whatever they all were. But he right. wrote reams and reams on alchemy, most of which he didn't publish because, of course, it was all secret. But nonetheless, oh, is more, that right? Yeah, there's more papers of his on alchemy than on physics. So go figure. <laughs> the, the, the other lesson that I was taught by one of my mentors, actually, early on, is that apparently uh, Newton was very interested in the book of Job in the Bible and uh, thought that his own uh, interpretation of the book of Job was more important than anything he did in physics, which I think is a good joke, if, even if it's not true. Yeah. I hope it's true. <laughs> well, none of us is a very good judge of whatever we do is important and whether it will remain important or not. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the humility of doing science, right? You, you do what you think is important, but you often have no idea that some small thing will be far more important than the really big thing you thought you did. You know? Right. So, so let me actually bring up my own puzzlement about smell and taste, and particularly the conscious aspect of smell and taste. And I'm going to give you a, a sketch of what I think has happened in more popular fields of perception in the, since the 1970s. Basically, I think that the problem of consciousness in perception, which was much ignored until about 1970, has suddenly uh, revived after people thought it was good and dead, as the behaviorists uh, preferred to think. 
And I believe that this is roughly true, that in vision, for example, we tend to believe that visual system starts when it gets into cortex, starts without consciousness, and then by the time we get to the object perception, visual object perception in areas that are called IT and MTL, IT being the lower temporal cortex, and the MTL being the medial part of the temporal cortex, there's very nice evidence that that's the moment of ignition, as some scientists call it, uh, Stan Dehaan and Jean-Pierre Changeux call that the moment of ignition. I used to call it broadcasting. I'm not sure what it should be called right now, but there's this very nice evidence for that. The point is that vision starts unconsciously and then becomes conscious. It seems to require a process, and I think the same thing is true in audition and in speech perception, for example. And my guess was that people in olfaction and, and taste uh, would be thinking along similar lines, and then I started to read a little bit, and of course it's not true. So this is a question for me, and it's a genuine, uh, very important, uh, I think it's an important question. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of two minds about this in some ways, Bernie. We, we can go into it in much greater detail, and I hope we will, but just as a, a sort of an overview, on, on the one hand, I think olfaction for many years suffered under the idea that it was somehow or another an idiosyncratic or unique little bit of brain system. Um, one of my great mentors, my postdoctoral mentor and a good friend and colleague, who I'm sorry to say just passed away this summer, was Gordon Shepard, who I'm sure you you know are familiar yes, with. Yes, and, of and course. one of the reasons you know, one of the reasons I went to work with Gordon as a postdoc was that he insisted that olfaction and the olfactory system, in which he was a pioneer, was part of mainstream neurobiology. That the principles that that governed olfaction in some ways or another would be part of mainstream neurobiology, not some funny little idiosyncratic thing. And that, I think, is an important idea, that what we learn about the brain will tell us more about olfaction, that what we learn about olfaction can help tell us about other things in the brain. But I also think that the more we have learned about olfaction, the more we come to recognize that it is a bit different than vision and audition and even uh, touch. Our uh, touch is a big area, but the idea of the, the notion of somatosensory, what I guess it's called, and that it does work perhaps, it's required to work along somewhat different lines. And that's interesting because it gives us an alternative view of how conscious perceptions, if you will, may arise and, and what the raw material is, because it's, it's the raw stimuli are quite different from those in vision and hearing and even somatosensory. So we can discuss that in more depth. But I have these two kind of competing views of it. One, that it's not idiosyncratic, it's mainstream. And the other is that it does do some things quite differently, I think. And we should be happy that we have more than one model. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's also, of course, this enormous evolutionary time period over which olfaction uh, evolved. The mythology is that it's one of the earliest senses to evolve. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's certainly extremely early in uh, aquatic uh, animals especially, which is a, a medium that's obviously hospitable to uh, two molecules being dissolved in the medium and then signaling 
early fish or whatever there were, about the presence of food, the presence of enemies, the presence of toxins, and so on. Uh, that's bare survival stuff. So it's a good story that the chemical senses, olfaction and taste, evolved very, very early. And what, what's the current understanding of that? I mean, we, we don't understand it completely. I think we, we make these stories up to some extent, but they're good stories, and it's probably true. I mean, we see chemical sensibility, chemical detection in bacteria. Dan Koshland at Berkeley for many years was also the president of the AAAS, a, a science, American Academy of Science, worked on this for years. And so even as low as, you know, even bacteria, non-eukaryotes, if you will, have a chemical sense and, and go up chemical gradients or down them or flee from them or things of that nature. So certainly the ability to sense chemicals, because chemicals are in the environment, I mean, is probably early. But I, I mean, photons have been around for a long time also. So it's pretty clear that, that some sort of visual sense must have developed early as well, or some light sensitivity at least must have developed early. And one could make a similar case, I think, for temperature, that heat and cold have existed for quite a long time as well. And right. so biological organisms are likely to take advantage. I mean, evolution takes advantage of whatever is out there. So they've all, they've all been around quite a long time. There's no question about that. But that doesn't make them primitive, of course. I mean, in evolutionary terms, that means they've had a longer time to evolve. So they could be more sophisticated by right. virtue right. of being older, as it were. Right, right. And speaking of how senses evolved and how they helped to survive, carrying on on what Bernie said, the sense of smell, for example, can invoke very, very powerful memories of a place or a specific type of danger, you know, an animal that may be around and that you want to escape from. But it does so in the most unique ways as compared to other senses. And I mean that in where you, if I'm sure we've all experienced this, where if you sense a specific type of smell from the past, it sometimes very vividly would flood your conscious thoughts with memories of a specific person or a place. Stuart, can you tell us about the biology of that? Why is the sense of smell so powerfully connected to memory and how does it work? Well, it's an excellent question. And I'm afraid it will stay a question even after my answer. <laughs> so so the best I can do is, is maybe sort of put some angles on the question a little bit. It would be interesting. I mean, it, it has been a puzzle in the field for a long time. We, we all have these experiences. In the field, we call it the Proust effect because it was famously written up by uh, Marcel Proust in his massive uh, book, Remembrance of Things Past, aptly titled, which starts off early on, relatively early on, with this experience he has where he, 40-some-odd years old, has a cup of lemon tea and a Madeleine biscuit, and it evokes this memory suddenly, this vivid memory of when he was a child, because after church every Sunday, he would be served lemon tea and Madeleine cookies by his aunt. And this is what really motivates the entire rest of the book. I mean, hundreds of thousands of words of remembrance of things past. And, and he's struck by this vivid memory. It's a beautiful passage, by the way, in its description of memory and how memory might work in, uh, in, a, in well, it's not a fictional sense. It's a personal recounting of it. But it's beautiful. He talks about how it's there and then it fades and then he has to wait a while, but he can re-evoke it, but it's not always as strong the next time. and it, It's not controllable, but it's so vivid, it's so present. How could that be from 40 years ago when he hadn't thought about this for 40, literally had never thought about it. And 
bingo, there it was as if it happened an hour ago. So here's what I can tell you a little bit about that. One is that these kinds of memories, these kinds of olfactory memories that are so vivid and evocative, are always emotional memories. So you don't smell something and remember a phone number or an equation or a page of text or something really useful like that. You always, these memories are always of some childhood event, a first lover, your grandmother's living room or basement or something like that, the first day of school, uh, Crayola crayons, I don't know, all of these sorts of things. There are always memories that are tied to emotion. That may have something to do with the wiring of the olfactory system, and Bernie, we can get into this in some depth maybe a little bit later on. One of the curious things about the olfactory system is that unlike all the other uh, sensory systems, it does not go through thalamic nuclei. There's no direct connection between the olfactory system and the thalamus, which is, you know, all other sensory systems go from the primary receptors. The, usually their first relay is in the thalamus and some thalamic nuclei, and then they're sent out in various ways that we don't entirely understand to cortical tissue. In olfaction, that doesn't happen. And so we there are, on the other hand, direct connections to the amygdala and the other areas of the limbic system, which tend to, of course, be associated with emotional um, regulation. And so that may be one reason why these recalls, these olfactory recalls, are so vividly emotional. I mean, that's I'm waving my hands around here, right? You can't see that, but I'm waving my hands around. I, I, I can see it. I, uh, okay. I like waving hands, actually. <laughs> okay, good. You can certainly feel the breeze going by, I'm sure. sure. So, we don't, so, so the answer is we don't really know. Um, there are all sorts of interesting um, examples of it. People test it a lot. But it's, um, and it's hard to know whether it's true in other animals as well. Now, I mean, there are long-term olfactory memories. One of the most interesting uses of it was by a fellow named John Garcia many years ago. Where was he? Somewhere in Colorado, Utah, somewhere out there, sort of not quite the coastal west. And one of the places it shows up is in this thing we call a taste aversion. So we'll talk in a moment, I guess, about the difference between taste and smell. But a lot of what we call taste is really flavor, and a lot of that is really olfactory. So when you talk about a taste aversion, it's often really an olfactory aversion, or it's wound up with an olfactory aversion, and it's wound up with an olfactory memory. So you know these situation. It's a very similar situation where you eat something, it's bad, it makes you sick, and now you can't stand to be near that ever again. You just never want to taste it again. So it's a very long-lasting kind of memory. It's one trial memory. There are all kinds of curious things about it. It's related to this olfactory memory business. So John Garcia used it in the following interesting way, I think. This was a problem with uh, sheep farmers somewhere out, as I say, in the West, and predation by coyotes on the sheep. The sheep farmers wanted to trap and kill all the coyotes, which would have in the end been something of an environmental disaster. And what Garcia did was he took some sheep some dead sheep, and he laced them with a chemical called lithium chloride. The lithium chloride is itself actually odorless and tasteless, but if you eat it, you will get deathly ill. You won't die from it, but you will get quite sick from lithium chloride. And so he laced these sheep carcasses with lithium chloride and spread them all around the fields. And these coyotes came and ate them and then got deathly ill. And that was it. They would never go near another sheep. Couldn't stand the smell of sheep. They had now, you know, associated the smell of sheep with being terribly ill. And that was it. And it was actually a very effective method of reducing uh, coyote predation on sheep without killing the coyotes. 
So that's one crazy application of this sort of thing. But again, we don't really understand how it happens. It's very curious, these taste aversions. One trial learning, the actual event, the eating, the thing you eat, and when it makes you sick can be separated by many hours, which is typically not the case for learning, as you probably well know, that usually you have to associate things fairly closely. So where in the global workspace we held we hold this memory, Bernie, I think is a very interesting thing to ask. I mean, how do we know that six hours ago what I ate is what made me sick? Oh, absolutely. Pavlov's experiments typically used a three-second interval between the bell and the food, which is the conditioned and the unconditioned stimulus. And from three seconds in dogs uh, with totally arbitrary stimuli, right? Because there are no dinner bells right. in nature, right? right? <laughs> uh, n- not even food powder and not even meat powder. And, and suddenly you go from three seconds to 24 hours with the wolves. And it's astonishing. I, I think uh, Garcia's work certainly convinced me that associative conditioning, uh, even with relatively arbitrary um, stimuli, that it can be extremely powerful, but you have to work with nature, right, rather than mm-hmm. against nature. Yes. So so we don't know what the mechanisms for this are, you know, the, to just kind of finalize the, the answer with a bigger question, but it remains an active area of research. We certainly would like to know. Um, I mean, this, to some extent, Barry, brings us to an interesting issue with the way the olfactory system is wired, since, as I mentioned, there's no thalamic nuclei. Uh, the olfactory circuit, the brain circuit in olfaction, is very, I guess what you'd call very shallow. There are, um, Ramoni Cajal, famously, the famous neuroanatomist, maybe the father of modern neuroscience, was the first to recognize that there are only two synapses between the outside world and olfactory cortex. You were talking briefly a minute ago about visual cortex, but you know, to get from your photoreceptors that actually detect photons to IT or, or the medial temporal uh, lobe. I mean, there's several synapses, six or seven synapses. There are three or four just in the retina, let alone getting further back to the cortex. But in the olfactory system, you have, you have your olfactory receptor neurons that send their axons or cables to the olfactory bulb where they make a synapse with a second order neuron called the mitral cell. And that mitral cell sends its axon to the piriform cortex where it makes a, a synapse with pyramidal cells in cortex. And that's it. And, I mean, and you're so done. The, so the assumption, I think, that's embedded in what you just said is that uh, cortex is kind of the probable place where stuff becomes conscious, at least sensory stuff becomes conscious. And I think there's direct evidence for that in vision and hearing and touch. I'm not aware of any direct evidence in uh, olfaction, in, in smell and taste, basically. No, you're right. I don't think there is any direct evidence for this. I mean, one of the other things to recognize about this field is that it's small. I mean, there are not that many people still, even who work in olfaction, even though it's become more popular than ever. But 
through the 1970s and 80s until really the early 1990s in this seminal discovery by Linda Buck and Richard Axel of the massive family of odor receptors. Until then, it was it was considered a kind of a small, it was a small field. It was a little off the mainstream. I mean, I have all these wonderful pictures of people, you know, looking at dopamine receptors and they would take a mouse brain, you know, and do some sort of staining for dopamine receptors to see where they were. And you'd see these pictures of mouse brains that they taken out of the mouse with no olfactory bulb on them because typically if you're not very careful when you take when you sacrifice a mouse and you take the brain out the olfactory bulb will detach and stay behind so you have to be very careful to make sure you get it and people just didn't care (laughs) they just didn't give a damn and so they'd leave the bulb behind even though actually there are tons of dopamine receptors in the olfactory bulb which we'll get to later because it's probably important in Parkinson's disease, for example. But it just was ignored. And so it's a small field. And so we, so there are many of these questions like, what is the piriform cortex doing? There are two people I know of who really study the piriform cortex in any depth. And that's only been the last few years. You know, we don't have a big clinical side to olfaction. It's not, it's not a serious medical problem, even though in COVID we realized that people complained bitterly when they lost their sense of smell and realized how important it was. But, you know, it's still not going blind or going deaf. So it's not a big clinical field and and so forth. And so, you know, we just don't have the people, we don't have the resources and the manpower that the visual field has had or the auditory field right. has had to to make these kinds of, to do these kinds of experiments. The question that comes up for me with regard to COVID is the relationship between the immune system and the chemical senses, uh, because the immune system obviously uh, responds to both toxic uh, chemicals and probably healing chemicals, and that discrimination is extremely important and very complex. Uh, I spent some years with uh, Gerald Edelman, who had a theoretical idea about that that I want to ask you about. That idea he called neural Darwinism. And his point was that the immune system, for which he received a Nobel Prize in the 1970s, actually, uh, the immune system is a selectionist system in very much the same way that evolution over millions of years is a selectionist system. And one important implication of that is that you don't have to have a dictionary of molecules. You expand the dictionary essentially as evolution goes on. So there's an unpredictability and a high adaptability at the same time. You don't know what's going to happen ahead of time in evolution, but you get a very good postdoc story. This is, again, one of, the, one of these very interesting things with olfaction. So a number of people early in olfaction, I mean, even Jerry Edelman, and interestingly, um, both Linda Buck and Richard Axel were actually originally trained as immunologists and worked in immunology before they came to the oh, olfactory really? field. Yeah, so, and, and so there are interesting comparisons to be made in the sense that the immune system is so effective because it doesn't make set predictions about the world it learns as it goes and and adapts and and i mean the immune system has a kind of a rapid evolution as it were um, by making you know all kinds of things and then selecting for what works the actual mechanisms in olfaction turn out to be quite different than that in the immune system but the idea behind it is you say you don't have to have a dictionary you don't have to have a code of some sort to begin with 
you can make this code up as you go along, as it were. You make lots and lots of receptors, and you see which ones turn out to be useful, and you pick them up as they're useful, and and then you build perceptions out of them. I mean, I'm making this sound like we have a formula for it. I don't. There's a lot. There's a lot of details I've left out in there because I don't know them, of course. But I think you're you're right that way. I mean, it's a very interesting metaphorical comparison, even though the mechanisms have turned out to be somewhat different. Interesting. Uh, it's actually worth saying uh, that those of us who survived COVID, like all of us right here, have been able to do that because we our immune system is able to recognize novel toxins. And uh, of course, we know much more about it uh, uh, right now, but long before we knew anything about it, of course, the immune system started to know about this because the immune system is as you just said, the immune system learns novel, uh, truly novel things. Yeah, I, I compare it sometimes. I mean, I'm not an immunologist, so it's probably not a perfect comparison. But it is a little bit like language acquisition, where babies babble in virtually all the phonemes of all the languages in the world. But little by little, they reduce the phonemes they use to the ones that are used in their native language and lose the ones from from other ones and so there's again this overproduction and selection i think we see this again again in biology in the brain and the nervous system and development and in every area of biology there is there's overproduction and then pruning by experience yeah that's great now cherry also used that as a way to approach consciousness and consciousness operates over let's say, 100 millisecond periods and faster than that. 100 milliseconds is kind of useful, uh, for instance, uh, time, because there are many, many perceptual phenomena that take place over 100 milliseconds. It's the period of time for a single alpha wave or theta wave, uh, roughly speaking. It's the simple reaction time period and so on. Many, many things in consciousness process much, much faster than that, of course. But the the integrative capacity of sensory consciousness seems to hang around 100 milliseconds. I have no idea if there's any evidence for that in taste and smell, but it would be an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and I don't really know the answer to it. I mean, the system at the periphery, the peripheral receptors, they do habituate relatively quickly. That's somehow or another to be expected, I think, because, you know, sensory systems, as we say, are interested in news of news, right? They, they don't, you don't really want an odor molecule or the response to it to be hanging around for long because you want to be ready to smell the next one coming in or know whether right. it's still there or has right. now disappeared. Yep. So, yeah, so it's, it's fairly fast at the periphery, but what goes on in the way of storage of those memories or, or those odors, we don't really know, I think. Interesting. Eileen, do you have a question on the top of your mind? Uh, uh, so, Bernie, really? So somebody who studies consciousness uses a phrase like, on the top of your mind, huh? That's interesting to me. <laughs> you know, it, it's actually a dead metaphor, but... Sometimes dead metaphors are useful, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I have a question for you, actually. Sure. This has been bugging me for a while. This has nothing to do with olfaction, but it does have to do, I think, with consciousness and with memory, at least, okay? Yeah. So, 
it happens to me often. I think it happens to lots of us, but I, I notice it when I'm teaching, especially. So I'll be saying something, I'll be on lecturing on about, you know, whatever it is that I'm teaching neuroscience or this or that. And at some point, a student raises their hand and says, I'm sorry, professor, could you just repeat what you just said? I didn't quite yeah. get it down. And I go, <laughs> no, actually, I don't know what I just said. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how can I not know what I just said? I mean, it was only a couple of seconds ago. And yet I don't actually, you know, somebody will say, boy, you said that just perfectly. Can you repeat that so I can get it down? And I go, no, I don't. I don't remember exactly what I said. How come that is? Yeah, uh, that's very nice. I used to study psycholinguistics where that question came up, and uh, a woman named Jacqueline Sachs in 1966 ran an experiment on essentially that phenomenon. And the story turns out to be that uh, within a few seconds of hearing a spoken phrase, we convert that information to semantics. And then 10 seconds after that, all we have is the semantics because we're flooded with phonology and morphology mm -hmm. and grammar and blah, 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 uh, all these things. So it's, it's a very intensive uh, process taking in speech. The semantics gives us the information uh, we need to try to answer that question. Of course, semantics gives us paraphrases of the original speech. It doesn't give us the original yeah. speech. Of course, maybe actors are very good at memorizing uh, actual speech. I imagine they are. Oh, that's interesting. I should ask actors about this. I know. I still know a few actors. I'm, I'm going to check that with them. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. So why do olfactory neurons maybe way up somewhere in the uh, hippocampus, why do they regenerate? Or what is, makes them different? in terms of the question of regenerating? Yes, there are a couple of angles to this question. So olfactory neurons, olfactory what we call olfactory receptor neurons, which are the neurons that are actually deposited sort of in the upper area of your nasal cavity. So they're true neurons, they're, uh, they're central nervous system type neurons, but they've been pushed out of the brain as it were, to be in the top of your nose, just like your retina is made up of neurons, but it's not inside the skull. So because it needs to be in contact with the stimulus, with the world, of course. So these are true neurons. And as you and your audience surely know, most neurons don't regenerate. When you lose them, they're dead and they're gone and you don't get new ones to replace them. Thus, stroke and various injuries are the things you do to them that destroy them. You wind up with a decrement of some sort. In the olfactory system, it's true that you can regrow these neurons. There is a population of stem cells, adult stem cells, that remain viable throughout your life at the base of the tissue. And they're normally quiet, but in the case of an injury or the loss of the sensory neurons above them, they will come back to life and they'll butt off new neurons. It's a very robust phenomenon. Uh, if you do it experimentally, if you take a mouse, let's say, and you sever the olfactory nerve, all the axons from the olfactory neurons that go back to the brain, the mouse will you know, lose its sense of smell. And within a few days, all of those olfactory neurons in its nose will die off. They will just 
because that's what happens when you cut the axe onto a cell. So they'll die off and be disposed of. They'll just be pushed out of the tissue. And then these um, stem cells will become activated. And within about six or 10 weeks, somewhere between six to 10 weeks, something like 8 million brand new neurons will be regenerated. And they'll take their place in the epithelium and they'll go back to the olfactory bulb and they'll find their targets and make synapses. And the animal sense of smell will be restored. And that happens in humans as well. Now, there so, in some cases it doesn't work because there's scar tissue blocking things and all the rest of that. But in, in most cases, people can regain, or in many cases, people can regain their sense of smell by regenerating these neurons. It does not happen continuously. We used to think it happened continuously, but that's not the case. It happens in the early part, well, for a mouse at least. I, I, I don't know these... I can't do these experiments on humans, but in a mouse, what we know is that they can they continue. We thought that they regenerated new neurons at a very high rate because we'd only look at mice up until they're about 30 days old when they become, quote, sexually mature, which we call adults. We know better than that, of course, but that's what we do with mice. And so typically people only look at a mouse 30 or 45 or 60 days old to consider that an adult mouse. That's not really the case, especially in the olfactory system, when it turns out that they continue to add new neurons for the first six to eight months of their life. And then that process stops and these stem cells go quiescent, but can be reawakened in the face of an injury or some other problem with the olfactory neurons. So, so it's, it's quite an interesting phenomenon, and I think very understudied. There are very few people who work on this, which I think is terrible, because here you have, I mean, we, my laboratory worked on it for a little while, and then we had to stop. It's very expensive to work on things that happen over age, because for one, you need to let the animals get old, which means you have to let them sit around for a while and pay for them every day. And then the problem is you get old as well. <laughs> So, <laughs> so you know, it limits what you can do. That's why we use mice, because they, they get very old in about two years, but it's still two years. Anyway, we found out that even in a very old mouse, a mouse 24, 26 months old, that's very old, that's in, a mouse would be comparably to a human being in their, well into their 90s. If you sever the olfactory axons, they regrow a brand new olfactory epithelium. These stem cells pop back to life. And so you could imagine a way of reprogramming them to do, you know, to, to produce different kinds of neurons and olfactory neurons um, and using them to replace neurons that you lose as the result of diseases like Parkinson's or ALS or any of these other sort of devastating neurological diseases. But not so many people work on them, and I, I can't tell you why that is. Yeah, that's, that's puzzling. Yeah. Uh, especially in light of this whole new field of regenerative medicine. Uh, at least the title is out there. I don't know if the actual work is out there. Yeah, I mean, people work on, you know, regen. Uh, listen, I'm happy to have them working on the regeneration of my liver and things like that, too. So that, that's sure. okay. But, sure. you know, I mean, it's so rare in the brain to have a population of cells that regenerate. And we know one of the other places, of course, is in the hippocampus. You get new cells made in the dentate gyrus, this right. area in the, in the hippocampus. Or the cells are made in the ventricle but moved up in the hippocampus. And we now know that when that process doesn't work right, it's often a symptom if not a cause of uh, mental illness, of schizophrenia, and certain kinds of depression. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so it's recognized a little while ago that people with lifelong schizophrenia or lifelong bipolar disease 
we don't autopsy people a lot anymore, but when they did autopsies on these people, they noticed that they had much smaller hippocampi. And the reason seemed to be that the hippocampus was smaller because it wasn't getting this replenished um, cells. It's a very slow process. It's not a long process. It's one of the reasons people think, at least, that these drugs that are very useful for bipolar or depression or things like that, even schizophrenia, you know, uh, Prozac that everybody takes, yeah. So so one of the curiosities of Prozac is that you give it to people. It's very effective typically, but it takes two weeks sometimes to have any effect. And so people have to take it for two weeks before you begin to see the effect. And one of the reasons we think that is that the effect it's actually having is on these uh, regenerating neurons, that it increases the regeneration of these neurons or it increases their ability to take a place in the hippocampus. But it takes a couple weeks for that to happen. Yep. I mean, normally you give somebody a drug, you give them a drug for their blood pressure, you see the effect within a day or two. Right, right. Now, are olfactory receptors unique to the nose? No, no, that's a great question. We found them now in lots of other tissues. Originally, we thought they were unique to the nose, but they turn out to be in a lot of other tissues. They've now been found in heart, in liver, in muscle, in esophagus, in the gut, and in particular in the kidney, where we actually know what the function is. There are nine olfactory receptors expressed in a very specific set of cells in the kidney where they're sensitive to fatty acids, and they sample fatty acids as they come through this little tubule in the kidney, and they regulate what's called glomerular filtration rate. So they're very important in the kidney. We don't know what they do in many other places. In, in fact, th there is even the possibility that olfactory receptors did not begin as olfactory receptors. They began as chemoreceptors and other tissues in the, in the body, and eventually coalesced into, along with the rest of the brain into a sort of a cephalic, you know, into our head, into a single organ in the head, where they became the nose and expanded significantly. Right. So we don't know which came first, the olfactory receptors in the nose or the olfactory receptors in the kidney. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fascinating. And I guess one of the insights that came from the genomics revolution, that you could start tracing evolutionary events that previously seemed to be very different from each other and find relationships uh, between them. So, so that suddenly a lot of biology that was the great unknown uh, started to make some kind of sense. And that's a kind of satisfaction that we all hope to get. Yeah, I think, you, you, you know, one of the great stories there, Bernie, that, that people don't talk about much, but is that olfactory receptors are a certain kind of receptor. They're what's called G-protein-coupled receptors. I'm sorry for that. We just call them GPCRs. But they're very closely related to receptors for dopamine and serotonin. There are dozens of them, about 450 different kinds of these receptors throughout our body, but in particular in the brain. So lots of important molecules that we use in the brain use this kind of receptor. And one of the classic versions of this G-protein couple receptor is actually rhodopsin, which allows us to see light. And it does this by having a, a molecule embedded in it called um, retinal, which is the, the molecule that binds to that particular receptor. Right. And when light hits it, it changes the shape of it and that, that activates the receptor. But it's, a, it's the same kind of receptor as an adrenergic receptor or a serotonin or dopamine or an olfactory receptor. So yes, so evolution uses this technology, as it were, again and again, with little tweaks around it to allow us to do many, many things, allows our, our body to do a remarkable number of things. 
you know, there there's some very interesting parallels that are happening in neuroscience and in neurobiology more generally. And one of the other connections that comes to mind is Walter Freeman, the late Walter Freeman, and in my mind, the late great Walter Freeman, who was a, uh, in his own way, a very idiosyncratic, a very eccentric scientist. I knew him very well. I was a graduate student when he was at Berkeley. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I knew Walter. That's that's wonderful. Uh, I knew him uh, much later on. I've spent time looking at some of his data, or at least some of his data graphs, where I had to look for months at the same graph before I started to grasp it. And this is particularly the graph uh, that shows that there's striking similarities between activity in rabbit cortex and in human cortex. Uh, this also hovers around the magic number 100 milliseconds, mm-hmm. or 10 times a second. One of the hypotheses that Walter dropped casually one day, I think, was that the theta rhythm in the brain is extraordinarily widespread, and it apparently has multiple sources, like the alpha rhythm. And the question comes up, what is the evolutionary origin of that, uh, Walter's idea was that it's just about the breathing rate for early mammals, uh, which were about the size of uh, small mice, I, I would guess. Is that, is that about right? I think that's the idea, yeah. So, so you can kind of figure out the metabolic rate of these uh, tree-dwelling mouse-like creatures, and suddenly you have a rationale for how often you have to breathe in order to maintain your body and maintain your body temperature and so on. And that gives you a just-so story for the origins, perhaps, of the theta rhythm of the brain. These rhythms have been mysterious ever since they were discovered by uh, Hans Berger in 1911 or something like that, Hans Berger happened to have the best amplifiers in the world. Uh, so he was able to, to slap a couple of, uh, of electrodes on his son's head uh, on the outside, obviously. And he was able to discover, much to his surprise, obviously, that instead of a lot of noisy guff that you expect to get from the, this brain that has millions of neurons and uh, trillions of connections and all, all that, Instead of that, you get these little sine waves. It makes no sense whatsoever. But that was the alpha wave. That was the discovery of the alpha wave. And I think there's a better understanding right now. We've had 100 years. But I don't know if we have a good story on it yet. Uh, What do you think? So, yeah, I know it, it, it goes all over the place. I mean, there are people who just think there's some sort of emergent phenomenon of no importance whatsoever. And there are other people, of course, who think it's the crucial timing aspect of the brain. The evolutionary, I, I, I love this evolutionary explanation. I actually was unfamiliar with Walter's evolutionary explanation. But I do think that much about our brains owes a great deal to the earliest kinds of uses of neural networks, if you will, which is for rhythmic behaviors. I mean, I think the first one being simple filter feeding, which still exists as peristalsis in our own gut, and then um, swimming behaviors, you know, which are very repetitive. 
breathing, of course, blinking, uh, a, gr- a great deal of these sorts of um, behaviors that are highly repetitive and use these, I guess we call them pattern generators, central pattern generators, I think were the earliest kinds of neural circuits. And there's still traces of them in our brains. I mean, you know, this is how evolution works. It builds on what's there. It doesn't reinvent or it doesn't invent very much. It just modifies and builds on what's there. So I have no, well, I have doubts. We should all have doubt, but I, I, I'm very attracted to the idea that these rhythms actually started out in, in things like breathing patterns, maybe in the peristalsis in our gut, um, feeding patterns, chewing and swallowing and things of that nature. All of these are very important, you know, repetitive behaviors that we take for granted, if you will. I mean, we quote would call them unconscious behaviors, but I think they're deeper than that. Yes, uh, very interesting. I've lately started to have the thought that maybe consciousness emerged, at least in part, from sensory systems. And there's a very simple reason for that. Wilder Penfield, who did the first waking brain exploratory surgeries uh, over a 30-year period, I think maybe 40-year period, and, and had 1,200 at the end of that time, 1,200 wow, uh, epileptic uh, surgical patients uh, that he had stu- that his team had studied. Uh, a huge amount of data that nobody has access to because Penfield wanted to protect their privacy. But it's true enough uh, because that stuff has been replicated by other people. Uh, Penfield may have been the first or one of the first to discover that the posterior cortex is mostly sensory and that ahead of the posterior cortex you have motor control and you have so-called higher functions. And that's an oddity because it reveals such simplicity in the face of this enormously complex, both from an evolutionary point of view and from an anatomical point of view, physiological point of view, chemical point of view, whatever, uh, this immense complexity has this weird division. This whole met- New York metropolitan area has a, a difference between downtown Manhattan and Queens, and that has to mean something. And one possible interpretation is that uh, that sensory regions of cortex may have preceded the more uh, frontal regions. That's at least a a possible hypothesis. The other aspect, of course, is the wake-sleeping cycle, uh, because we're conscious when we're awake. And actually, we're conscious when we're dreaming also, of course, uh, which is is very often neglected, actually. Yes. But that's the way the EEG looks. That's the memory we have from dreams. And and that's also a, a great source of creativity for Marcel Proust and, and people like that, who who actually, uh, being in a, in a drowsy state, uh, of course, can be enormously uh, creative. So all these things interact with each other, and they must have interacted with each other over billions of years in ways that we can hardly imagine, but we can get little hints how some of that may have emerged. Well, you raise a very good point, and I wanted to ask Stuart more about it. Would you talk more about how the factory system presents us with a 
alternative views of how sensory stimuli are parsed in the brain and how we integrate those into some sort of a worldview. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, once again, <laughs> rather large question. I knew I was asking the right person. <laughs> yes, I, I have an answer for this, I think. It's an answer that, that will only tell us what the real questions are. So one of the things that makes the olfactory system a bit different than the other systems, remember we're talking about whether it's idiosyncratic or just different in an interesting way. I think it's just different in an interesting way, is that the olfactory stimulus itself is quite different from other sensory stimuli. It's it's a very high dimensional stimulus, whereas other stimuli tend to be what we call low dimensional. So for example, color vision is really very low dimensional. It's just wavelength. That's the only thing that matters. And you have three receptors, which is more than enough to give, I mean, other animals have more, but we have three receptors that allows us to see thousands, maybe even millions of different shades and colors and hues and so forth. And so with only three receptors, because you have a low dimensional stimulus, one dimension to parse wavelength, that's sufficient. Um, even even the, the spatial view of the world, I mean, where things are in the world, is only a two-dimensional stimulus, in fact, right? I mean, it's X and Y, because we don't see it through, I mean, your retina is a flat sheet on the back of your eyeball, and so you actually lose the third dimension, it has to be made up again in your brain, a very interesting issue, as I'm sure you all know, Bernie especially, but so even that's only a two-dimensional stimulus, because your retina is a two-dimensional sheet of cells. The same thing is true with, with audition. It's a really a very low dimensional stimulus, you know, it's just frequency that comes in and we and your basilar membrane separates out these frequent the, any complex sound into its sinusoidal components and then somewhere back in your brain in some magical way that I don't understand, some Fourier transform occurs and it's rebuilt back up into a complex sound. But initially it's a low dimensional input to the brain. This is not true in olfaction. In olfaction, a typical, anything you smell, you smell a rose. A rose has several hundred molecules that, that are components of the rose odor. Coffee has 780 olfactory components to it, separate molecules that all add up to the smell of coffee. And each one of them has different chemical qualities. They have a different atomic composition, different molecular weights, different volatility, um, different shapes, different functional groups, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a very, very high dimensional stimulus and it's non-continuous. It's not like wavelength or frequency, which is a continuum. These are discrete molecules that all have different chemical qualities. And so the system has to come up with a somewhat different way, I think, of taking this stimulus in and building a perception out of that. Uh, of course, this is the big question, and we don't really know the answer to that. But it clearly uses some mechanism that's, that must be somehow different than what we use in a low-dimensional continuous stimulus for a high-dimensional discontinuous stimulus. And I think this is a fascinating area that we should be exploring in much greater detail. And we're just beginning to get ideas about this. I mean, how does the brain make sense of such a varied input? And one that, that's statistically much less predictable than the rest of the world. I mean, you know, you're born and, um, and you open your eyes and eventually you don't see that well. But little by little, you do begin to see the visual world and that sets up your visual cortex in certain ways. And the statistics of the visual world are very dependable. 
you know, they don't change around or, or take on it. They don't become new somehow or another. But that's not true in olfaction. I mean, you have no idea when the first time you're going to smell a rose is. And yet you smell a rose and it smells like something. Now, you may learn that it's a rose or something like that. But you have no You could be 30 years old. You know, if you live in the desert, you may not smell of flowers or roses or things like that until you're 30 or 40 years old. Or maybe never. I don't know. But your brain is ready for it when you do. How does it do that? I don't know, but it's, it, it is, as we said earlier, kind of an open system like the immune system where it's open and ready for these things. But how do we, how do these turn into a perception? Do we have to learn perception in the olfactory system, which would be a little different, I guess, maybe than, than other systems, or at least we, we learn, we're open to learning it much later in life. I mean, as you know, the visual system, if you don't train it properly early in life, it's much harder to deal with later, right? I mean, if you don't, correct strabismus and things like that during critical periods. The olfactory system doesn't seem to have a critical period, for example. You can smell something brand new anytime during your life, and it will form a, a perfectly usable perception. Well, that's very interesting because it brings, a, a, in my mind, a limitation of the olfactory system, which is uh, when you mix different smells, I know that the more smells you add, the harder, or at one point, it becomes impossible for the brain to parse those apart. What I think you're referring to is a discovery that was made many years ago by a fellow named David Lang in Australia, a psychophysicist. Here's, here's the experiment. It's very simple. You can, you can try it yourself if you want, easily enough. He had um, six different odor chemicals, monomolecular odor chemicals in little vials that were in liquid, right? And he just labeled them from one to six. And you give somebody a chance to smell each one of them. And one smelled floral, and the other one had a green smell, and one smelled citrus, and another one was woody, whatever descriptors you want to use. Uh, but they all had a different smell. And then he would put mix two of them together without telling you which two he mixed together and ask you which two they were. And you could say, oh, that's uh, floral and citrus. And then he'd mix three of them together and ask you which two they were. And he'd say, and you could say, oh, that's woody, citrus, and green. And as soon as you put a fourth one in, you can't pick out what the components are. Suddenly it becomes a particular odor, but you cannot analyze it as components. Um, you no longer can see what the, what the constituent odors might be. Now, that's true to some extent in other sensory systems too, right? You can, I mean, you can play a chord with three or four notes in it, and a musician, a good musician, can probably tell you what the three or four notes are in that chord. But at some level, there are too many notes in the chord to really parse them apart, I think, anyway. And the same thing, I suppose, is true of color, right? I mean, you can, you can say, oh, well, that's got to be orange, yellow, and something else in there, you know, to make it that color, or there's probably blue and red in there that makes it purple. But at some point, you get colors where you may not be able to pick out every wavelength. But it's certainly more true in, uh, in olfaction. It's definitely not an analytic sense. We don't analyze by picking apart the components and then recognizing that pattern. We do it some other way. Don't know what that other way is, but we do it some other way. It's more holistic, if you will, than analytic. That sounds like I've said something, but I haven't, right? <laughs> Just because I said it's more holistic than analytic, I haven't really told you anything much. No, but it's certainly food for thought. Here's a somewhat deeper question. Vision appears to be, as you were saying, a low-dimensional input system, 
And this is at the very receptor, right? Yeah. But vision, when you get into area IT, for example, where you get objects, uh, object, visual object representation, people in houses and stuff like that, what you get is, is gestalts which are not low-dimensional. They're, they're right. high-dimensional. Yes. So you end up, by the time you get conscious of things, you end up with a pretty high dimensionality anyway in vision. So uh, that would suggest that smell is not all that different, at least not when you get into cortex. Well, talking now really off the top of my head, it might be different, Bernie. Maybe, in fact, smell is sort of the opposite. It's, it's a very high dimensional input, but by the time you get to cortex, it's fairly low dimensional. I mean, we take the 250 molecules that make up the smell of a rose, which is very high dimensional, and we just call it rose. And it's, there's no trouble discriminating a rose from a tulip or something else, you know, a banana from a pear. Um, well, there's an issue there because um, uh, if you talk to a French chef or, or to a perfume tester, it will turn out, of course, that, that they will have uh, much finer discrimination uh, than the rest of us have. And if we do very close comparisons, A-B comparisons, we can probably improve quite a bit over what we normally do. Mm -hmm. And the reason, presumably, is that uh, human beings at this point in our uh, cultural evolution, cultural development, uh, human beings can ignore smells because there's no danger. There's attraction, certainly, in terms of food and so on. Uh, but it's not a survival matter for, for most of us. So the argument there would be that um, we could be much better smellers if we learned to do that. Well, we actually, when carefully tested, human beings actually have quite a good sense of smell. The biggest problem, Bernie, with our sense of smell is that we walk on two legs. And uh, our noses are, you know, five feet, five and a half feet up in the air here. And odor molecules are, they have a weight to them and they tend to go down to the ground. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if, if we all got off our seats and started smelling the floor, you would be shocked at how much you would smell down there. That you don't smell by right. walking around up here. I mean, you know, when a dog catches a scent, its nose goes right to the ground. Yeah, it, it, it's already close to the ground. Now it puts its nose right on the ground. Right. And and one of the ways we know that we have a good sense of smell is that when you bring the molecules in close contact with your nose, they're very important. For example, in flavor. So or what many people call taste, which of course is really only sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and savory or umami. Everything else really should be called flavor, and that's almost entirely olfaction. So, you know, when you get a cold or something like that, you don't, you lose your sense of, quote, taste, but really you lose your sense of flavor. And the reason for that is, is that in humans, and it's very specific to humans, when our jaws became shorter and our noses smaller over evolutionary time, a pathway opened up in the back of our oral cavity, and it's called the retronasal pathway. So we smell two ways, either sniff things up, what's called orthonasally, this way, the normal way you think of smelling things, or when you put food in your mouth and you chew it up, Ideally, with your mouth closed, you're chewing your food, you release all these molecules, and the pressure of chewing actually pushes them up this retronasal pathway in the back of your mouth directly onto the olfactory receptors. 
And human beings have probably the most discriminating palate of any animal on the planet. I mean, if you have a dog, you know, it'll eat damn near anything, right? At least once. (laughs) So they're not very discriminating at all. even though they have a great discriminating sense of smell. So we do have quite an excellent olfactory sense. It's one of those things, though, and I think it's interesting from a consciousness perspective, Bernie, that that we only recognize it in its loss. We only become, we only recognize its value to us when it's gone. People who lose their sense of smell from an accident or virus like COVID or something like that, one of the first things that happens to them is they become very restless and paranoid because they worry that they won't smell a gas leak or a fire. They won't smell danger because we don't think about it because it's just always there, you know, and you know you would smell a fire if there was a fire going on. But if you know you don't have a sense of smell, you worry about this stuff. You worry about eating bad food that you would otherwise, you know, spit out and things like that. So it's curious. And then there are all these interesting reports that happened during COVID when people lost their sense of smell. One, some of them are heartbreaking, I have to say. They're very poignant. This one guy said, I I don't know. My life has changed completely. I come home. I know it's my home because I know my address. I know my furniture. I'm not at home. I don't feel like I'm in my home. I feel like I'm in a replica of my home. You know, there's a certain sense of embodiment that's lost when you don't have that sense of smell. It's curious when people who have long relationships, you know, long partnerships or whatever, when one spouse, let's say, dies, the last thing the living spouse gets rid of is the closet, the clothes in the closet. Mm. They'll put all the mementos away, they'll organize them, the photographs, and they'll put them in drawers or frames or whatever, but they don't want to get rid of the clothes because they go in the closet and they feel like the person is there. They have a sense that this person is still embodied somehow or another. So it does give us a very deep sense of embodiment, this sense of smell that, that is, quote, largely unconscious until it's gone. Yeah, very interesting. Ilian, did you have another question? Well, I do indeed, but uh, that will take us slightly off topic. Uh, It has to do with a course that Stuart started maybe more than a decade ago. The reason why I'm bringing this is because when I started my academic journey, I quickly came to the realization that a lot of what I had to learn was memorization. And you've talked about this, Stuart, as well, uh, that often science is taught in a deterministic way. In order to uh, counteract that, you've created this course where you invite other scientists to talk about unanswered questions in their fields. And that I found is a fascinating concept. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think are some ways that professors and teachers for that matter can amend their teaching practices in a way that would inspire more critical thinking and exploration of uncharted territories? All right, we will be off on a little bit of a tangent here. It's once again, you know, you, you have a tendency to ask very big questions <laughs> that, that don't have... <laughs> I, I, I do. <laughs> That's fine. That's very good. I don't have a good answer for this. I will tell you what I think is an approach to it. I think we have very good ideas about how it would be better to teach science, how it would be better to teach questions and uh, critical thinking in science and teach about failures as well as, I mean, we have these, we tend to teach science 
and textbooks that tell these kind of heroic narratives that you go from, you know, Copernicus to Galileo to Kepler to Newton to blah, 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 blah Maxwell, etc., Einstein, and kaboom, there's physics or whatever, you know. And we do this in all the different sciences. And, and there are these, you know, these arcs of discovery that are just pure myth. There were lots of failures and cul-de-sacs and mistakes along the way and things we tried and seemed right and weren't right and things like that. So... Should we teach all of that? Yes, I think we should teach at least some of it, but how do you... We know that these are valuable things to know, that the history of science taught alongside scientific knowledge would deepen our appreciation of it in many ways and and deepen our creativity and innovation around it. Why don't we do it? I mean, actually, the things I'm saying right now are kind of a repeat in a way of things that John Dewey said in the early 1900s, you know, who, who spoke brilliantly about education and the way it it ought to be done. So we've known this stuff for a hundred years. And so why is it that we're not doing it is the question. What's the obstacle to actually using some of these techniques or ideas about education? And I think the obstacle is essentially evaluation and assessment. That is, we still need a way to evaluate and assess what we're teaching, whether somebody's getting it or not. I mean, right now we use grades and things for that, and that's the problem. I think we're stuck with very old and blunt tools for evaluation and assessment. And until we can fix those, until we can come up with better ways of evaluating and assessing progress and the way, we're, and the way education is working, it'll be difficult to change the curriculum. I think the curriculum is largely driven now by the way we assess and evaluate. Uh, the good news there is, the reason I'm, I think this is actually a good thing, is I think those are scientific questions. I think evaluation and assessment are things that could be worked on by an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary group of people, including computer scientists, statisticians, gamers. I think gaming is, is a brilliant way to look at, at education. In a game, you, you have to collect a certain number of things in order to get to the next level, right? And some people are very good at the first two or three levels. They collect everything really quick, and the, but they get stuck on level five, and they need more time there. Other people takes time to get through level one or two, and then they speed through five other levels. But we don't allow that now in education, right? I mean, we teach algebra in seventh grade, and that, or whatever grade we teach it in, I don't know. But that's what it is. And if you're not ready for algebra in seventh grade, well, that's just tough luck, you know. You're never going to get it. And that's that's wrong somehow or another, I think. So we need these methods. I, I mean, I think people, art historians, museum curators, understand how you place value, how you assess a piece of art, I mean, which would seem to be the most subjective thing in the world. And yet, you know, at auction houses, they put numbers on it, which is very quantitative. They, they tell you it's worth this many dollars purely quantitative. And so I I think these are soluble problems, but we have to approach them from the right direction, which for me is, as I say, evaluation and assessment. Interesting. You might imagine an auction of some kind about whether someone should get an A or B or an F in a course uh, based on the multidimensional auction. I love the idea of a great auction. (laughs) I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this in my class. <laughs> I mean, the question is, yeah, you know. Except, oh, that's going to lead only to good things. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, it is in a way an interesting idea because you're asking what you would be asking students is you can bid on a grade, but you don't have money to bid on a grade. You have to use your knowledge to bid on this grade. You have right. to tell me what critical idea you have that's a good bid for this grade. Right. I love this idea, Bernie. I'm, I'm going to work on this. All right. 
My final question has to do with something uh, that you mentioned there, uh, Stuart. It briefly touched on failure, which I know one of your books is titled Failure, Why Science is So Successful. And as I was reading through that book, one chapter that made a huge impression on me was failing better. Mm. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating concept. Mm. You define that as courageously exploring the unknown, uh, which eventually leads to progress. And with regard to that, I had a couple of questions for you. And again, they might be slightly big, my style. (laughs) Can you point to an example from your own personal or academic life where you were able to fail better? Because I failed in my life a million and five times, plus or minus two, and I still tried to define which of those fails was a good one. Um, so I just wanted to hear what you consider in your own life better fail. And my second question is, do you think that the way scientific research is funded nowadays stimulates an environment where a scientist is willing to fail better? Well, the answer to the second question is the easier one, so I'll do that first. No. Is the answer to that one? <laughs> I don't think we incentivize failure <laughs> or incentivize scientific research in the right way at all. Of course, I, I mean I think terrible mistakes about this. You know, NIH famously has three point five percent of their budget usually to vary slightly per year, but it's usually around three three point five percent of their budget is devoted to what they call high risk, high impact research. It's a very risky, likely to fail, but if it succeeded, it would have a very high impact. I, that's very admirable and all the rest of that. But does that imply that 96.5% of the budget is being devoted to incremental crap that's not likely to lead anywhere? Because that would seem to be what that means to me. So that seems to somehow or another be reversed from what it should be. So anyway, that's the answer to the second question. The answer to the first question, I don't have a really good answer for either, but I, I have an objection to the question, actually. I get asked it a lot. You write a book on failure and somebody says, so what's your best failure, you know? What's your best example personally of a failure? I don't really have one. Um, and I don't think anybody should have one. I don't I I think the crucial thing to learn about failure is that it's not only valuable retrospectively because you learn something from it or it eventually led to some discovery. I, I use this quote from Gertrude Stein, which is that she says a real failure needs no explanation. It is an end in itself. And I think that's a hard thing to get your head around, right? But it's no. but you see the depth of that perception. I mean, she's always enigmatic, Gertrude Stein. But the depth of that idea is very important. Failure is not only important because, oh, this was a great failure I had because it led to this fabulous discovery. You know, that that's... that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that kind of failure as well. But I think the readiness to fail, the readiness to understand that failure is an integral part of the process. It's not the flip side of the coin from success. It's like, you know, failure and success are two horses pulling the wagon in the same direction. And so it's sort of like asking, what's your greatest success? Well, my greatest success is not yet hasn't happened yet, I hope. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I feel about it. I think that's true of my best failure. I, I, I don't have a best failure. I don't think we should have a best failure, exactly. You know, uh, I was once asked 
I guess I was asked in some interview I was doing about COVID or whatever, and people said, well, well, at least maybe we can learn from our mistakes with COVID. And I said, you know, the important thing with the COVID business to me is not to learn from our mistakes, which we always will do anyway. I think the important thing is we have to learn how to make mistakes. That's what we did so badly during COVID. We didn't make mistakes in a good way. And I, I just want to point out that the idea of failing better is not, I can't take credit for it. It comes from Samuel Beckett equally as enigmatic as Gertrude Stein, in which he says, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's try again, fail again, try again, fail better. So uh, there's another piece to it that I didn't quite get, but something like that. So it sounds like try again, fail again, try again, you know, this is the old trope, eventually it leads to success, persevere. But then he says, no, fail better. And that's important. Can we learn to fail better? Yes, I think we can. I think there are Failures that, again, are not just uh, retrospectively valuable. I'll, I'll just put one last thing on it. The real value of failure in science is that if you think ignorance is useful, that is, if you think science is about the unknown, then the deepest kind of ignorance, the deepest unknown, is the unknown unknown, right? The stuff we don't even know we don't know. And the only way I can think of to get to that really deep ignorance, that deep unknown, is by failing. You do an experiment because you don't know something and it doesn't work. Well, now you know there was something else you didn't know besides what you thought you were just looking at that you have, and you have to go back and figure that business out and do a set of experiments to get to what you didn't know you didn't know. So, and that's where the game really begins. That's the pleasure of it, it seems to me. Yeah, that's really nice. I have some examples that just came to mind. One of them is the uh, cosmic background radiation, yes, uh, which started off as an apparatus problem, essentially. And the good thing about it, of course, is that the scientists involved realized that this was an opportunity. It certainly was a failure, yes, but it was an opportunity and turned out to be an enormous, a grand opportunity. Yes. Yeah, well, won the, won the Nobel Prize as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but yes, but the, but they went through a, a couple of years of trying to figure out what the problem was. I mean, they were getting all this static, right? And the static turns out to be the leftover thermal noise from the Big Bang. But all they saw it as was interference, and they kept on redesigning and redesigning this thing and working it out. And I think they even scraped the pigeon shit off it at some point, thinking that had some electrical problem, all kinds of things, right? I think there's a metaphor for us in that, or at least it's a hint for a metaphor, uh, scraping off the pigeon shit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that ought to be something. That ought to be on the wall somewhere in every laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to be mindful of uh, Stuart's time. First of all, thanks again for doing this, uh, Stuart. Uh, you uh, are one of the most influential science communicators of <laughs> well, today. thank you. And most, one of the most effective. Well, thank you. I think it's one of the most important things we can do today. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly agree with that. And, and what we're doing here, of course, is... Uh, oops. Is another step in that direction, and I, I do want to thank you. This has been an enormously profound and, and fun uh, interview and conversation, and uh, we should definitely continue it as, as soon as possible. Well, yeah, but we should have some scotch in front of us. We should be face-to-face -face and have a bottle of scotch <laughs> between us, is the there, way we should do it. There you go. <laughs> we certainly will continue this, Bernie, because we are nowhere close to finished. Right. Good deal. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Great.
Thank you again, Stuart, for being here. Thanks to our listeners. It's a great pleasure talking to both of you, gentlemen. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure was mine. Bye. Bye-bye. To show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books. B-O-O-K-S in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S.com. And thank you for listening.